You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. I'm Esther Rakusin, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Our last couple of episodes covered science research amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Now it's time to zoom out, pardon the pun, above the Earth and check out what is happening in the sky close to Earth, farther out in near-Earth space, and beyond. To start out, Candice Limper will tell us about the migration celebration happening at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, This year, instead of a one-day in-person event, the Lab of O is hosting a virtual two-week celebration. After that, you'll hear my interview of three students from Ithaca College who are studying an asteroid called 101955 Bennu. And finally, you'll hear Liz Mahood's interview of Zoe Lerner-Pontario, manager of the Spacecraft Planetary Imaging Facility at Cornell, also known as SPIF. It is closed right now, but is hosting a remote learning program called Shelter in Space. You'll hear more about the program in in this segment. To start off, let's hear about what's happening above Earth's surface in the sky. Hi everyone, my name is Candice Limper with Locally Source Science, and for my segment, I want to highlight a special event that started yesterday. September 14th through September 26th, the Lab of Ornithology will be hosting the Migration Celebration 2020. The purpose of this event is to bring together bird enthusiasts and those who are interested in learning more about these feathered creatures. There's a lot to know about birds and the Cornell Lab of Ornithology is motivated and excited to bring together experts to share their knowledge about birds. One fact that they posted on their website is that billions of birds migrate south at night during this time of year. One of the many interesting facts about this phenomenon is that they use light to travel to their destinations. If this sounds interesting to you, I implore you to check out the Migration Celebration 2020 events to learn more details about how birds travel some of the challenges they face, and how they are mapped, and more. This event typically takes place at the Cornell Lab Visitor Center as a one-day event. However, due to the novel SARS-CoV-2, this special occasion has been moved online. All of the sessions are broken into parts on different days and different times throughout the week. These activities will include live virtual activities, talks with bird migration specialists, and there are also family-friendly games for all to enjoy. My name is Candice Limper with Locally Source Science, and that was my segment highlighting the Migration Celebration 2020 hosted by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. That was Candice Limper speaking about the Lab of Ornithology's Migration Celebration. To learn more, go to birds.cornell.edu. Now, here's my interview of three college students who are studying an asteroid named 101955 Bennu that is currently the subject of a NASA exploration mission.
You may have read that an asteroid will be passing close to Earth on Monday, November 2nd, the day before U.S. Election Day. It could be just another reason to hate 2020. But seriously, the danger of 2018 VP1, a two-meter-wide asteroid hitting the Earth on November 2nd, is very small. Asteroids are always passing near Earth without causing any danger. And scientists want to learn more about asteroids because they can provide more information about Earth's origins. Our listeners might recall an episode from October 21, 2019, in which we interviewed Ithaca College professor Beth Ellen Clark Joseph, the mission asteroid scientist for the OSIRIS-REx mission. NASA scientists launched the OSIRIS-REx mission in 2016 to study the surface of the asteroid Bennu. The spacecraft has been orbiting the asteroid for about a year and a half. And last week, on September 8th, astronomers celebrated the fourth anniversary of that mission, with OSIRIS-REx still orbiting Bennu. Next month, on October 20th, OSIRIS-REx is slated to touch down briefly on the asteroid to collect samples from the asteroid's surface. To get an update on the research on Bennu that is happening at Ithaca College, I spoke with students who work with Professor Clark Joseph. They are current undergraduate Antara Sen and recent graduates Robert Malikian and Salvatore Ferron. First off, I asked Antara and Salvatore, what is an asteroid? It's a type of non-luminous um, rock uh, formation in space. Uh, it's mostly made of uh, minerals that we can find here on Earth. It also has some organics and other things that kind of uh, make it make its texture um, a little bit different than what we're used to here. What Antara was referring to with non-luminous is not illuminating any um, light itself as in the sun where it's just dormant with not any activity happening on the surface. And effectively, asteroids are remnant materials from the early days of the solar system, uh, where they haven't coalesced to form planets or larger bodies. I then asked Salvatore to discuss why astronomers are probing the surface of asteroid Bennu. The primary, one of the primary reasons, which is in the acronym OSIRIS-REx, is origins. I mentioned this earlier a little bit, but asteroids are effectively time capsules since the early days of the solar system where um, dust from the protoplanetary disk, um, which is what the solar system was, coalesced to form another star, and then other matter in the solar system coalesced to form the other planets. Um, And asteroids were also coalescing in that time period, but effectively after they were formed, they haven't been altered or changed since the early days of the solar system. So by looking at the composition of Bennu, we're able to probe what the composition of the solar system was like in the early days of formation. There's two, there's a couple of things that are of particular interest when we consider what the composition of an asteroid would be during that time period and a couple of different hypotheses that scientists want to probe, um, which gauging the composition will um, decipher between them. One of them being that um, the Earth and the inner planets they coalesce first with nickel and iron, which is why we have nickel and iron cores, because those elements are more dense. And so the gravitational force between um, them in the, in the dust cloud and the solar system was stronger. And once we had the core formed in the mantle, the um, organic matter, which is lighter, 
and um, other things like nitrogen and um, the stuff that we would need in the, the atmosphere came later on during the Earth's formation during the bombardment period where asteroids pelted the Earth's surface and that's what gave us the materials necessary for building life. Antara's work and Dr. Beth Ellen Clark Joseph's lab is hypothesizing what minerals might be on the surface of asteroid Bennu. Starting this past January, Antara worked with different combinations of minerals in the laboratory and studied the reflections emitted from the minerals when they were illuminated with visible or infrared light. She then compared those spectra with the spectra emitted from Bennu in order to deduce what minerals might be on the surface of the asteroid and what textures it may have. Here she describes the study. So any um, object, when it interacts with light, there's a portion of light that's reflected. If we study the percentage of light that's reflected at any wavelength, and we accumulate that across all measurable wavelengths, then what we get is a reflectance spectrum. And that's almost like a fingerprint for a material. So by using the reflectance spectrum of Bennu at visible and infrared wavelengths, we've tried to uh, create mixtures of uh, minerals that we can find here on Earth that could replicate the composition of Bennu, and we've tried to break down our simulated mixtures into textures that could replicate the surface texture of Bennu. And we try to do that by comparing the reflectance spectra of our lab mixtures to the reflectance spectrum of Bennu. Antara's analysis revealed that some of the minerals on Bennu are arranged in layers of silicon and oxygen, like the phyllo dough used in baklava. It's a phyllosilicate, which is basically like a hydrated mineral. And we have some idea of what different kind of kinds of phyllosilicates are most likely to be present on the surface. Um, and that's what that's one of the base assumptions that we've been working with. We've been working with a base of saponite. Saponite, one of the minerals that Antara is studying in the lab, has hydrated silica sheets with aluminum and magnesium. Here, she talks about how different textures of minerals can cause different reflection spectra. And using this information, she hopes to learn more about the surface of Bennu. Here she explains. What we actually see is that there's also a lot of um, spectral effects that are produced as a result of texture, not just composition. For example, if we look at a fine-grained particle versus a coarse-grained particle, the fine grain is much redder spectrally than the coarse grain. Hmm. So um, it is. it started out, um, the motivation for this was um, an, an image of Bennu, but um, all of our data analysis has been using the reflectance spectra. Another possible component on the surface of Bennu are organic molecules. Here, Salvatore Ferrone discusses what this could mean. One of the really materials of interest that we're trying to find are organics on the surface of asteroid, and these organics are aliphatic organics. And I believe those are carbon chains. They have been detected, which is something that's a really exciting result. There's a couple authors on the team right now who are publishing papers on them. Yeah, that's a, that's a big result that everybody's kind of excited about. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. I'm Esther Rakusen, and I'm speaking with Ithaca College students who are studying the asteroid Bennu. IC Professor Beth Ellen Clark Joseph is a lead scientist for the Osiris Rex NASA mission, which is studying the asteroid. Robert Malikian, an IC graduate and a former student in Professor Clark Joseph's lab, studied the dynamics of asteroid Bennu. What this means is that he looked at the orbit of the asteroid and studied how likely it would be for it to intersect with Earth's orbit. Here, using a car analogy, he describes the idea behind studying the dynamics of asteroid orbits. If I tell you that there's two cars driving towards an intersection, um, you know, coming perpendicular to each other, uh, that's not enough information for, for you to tell me that they're going to hit. You need to know how fast car A is driving, how fast car B is driving, how far car, car A has to go to the intersection, how fast car B. You know, there's all this information that we need to be like, oh yeah, these two are definitely going to be at the same place at the same time. Timing is the, is the key of all of this. Astronomers who are studying the dynamics of asteroid orbits are theorizing the existence of something called a resonance keyhole. It is a small section in a planet's gravitational region where gravity would alter the orbit of a passing asteroid, causing that asteroid to change its path on a future orbital approach. Here, Robert describes what that means. If a body passes near the Earth, especially this is like if we're, we're just going to talk in the near Earth scenario, but this can be this can be zoomed out to to be talked about for all other um, bodies that orbit near other um, other major planets. But um, for Earth keyholes, it'd be if something like Bennu comes near Earth at a certain date and at a certain position, then we have really high certainty that that interaction is going to send the um, the, the orbit of the body like Bennu um, towards a later um, intersection that would be like almost a certain impact. That's what those keyholes mean. Scientists studying the orbit of Bennu theorize that in 2035, Bennu will be closer to Earth than the moon. Here, Robert explains. Long story short, we really wanted to, um, to, to know more about the motion of this body um, and when and where it was going to be at its closest point. So 2135 is going to be sublunar. It's going to be one of the closest um, approaches. It's going to be the closest approach of the body since um, of Bennu since like 1788, which is the um, which is way in the past, and that was the last time that Bennu was really really close. The way the way that Bennu's orbit is shaped, its its period its orbital period it finishes an orbit in 1.2 years. Basically, every six, seven years, we know that Bennu is going to be close to us, that the orbit itself predicts that Bennu could be near the Earth within lunar distance. Like, that is the closest point. That's something called the minimum orbit intersection distance, where we know that the orbit of Bennu and Earth are really, really close, closer than, than, the, than the Moon is to us. And as we get further into the future, something, um, an additional really fun effect in dynamics called the Yarkovsky effect this is where basically the photons of the sun are bouncing off of the surface and, and being absorbed into the surface of Bennu in such a way that it's actually changing the shape of the orbit very, very um, incrementally, but over hundreds of years, thousands of years, it adds up. So we know that by 21 or 2080, 2100, that the minimum intersection distance is zero, meaning that there could be an overlap 
if the timing really works out. So 2135 is exactly about as close to, you know, um, the, the perfect scenario as possible where Benny was finally coming around the corner um, of that intersection towards Earth at around the same time that Earth is also um, coming to the same place. And now in this case, they don't intersect, but it, it um, but these are, you know, these are the things that, that, that we have to think of as dynamics. So scientists studying the dynamics of Bennu think that in 2135, it will come close to intersecting Earth's orbit, but it probably won't come too close. Finally, to close out our conversation, I asked Antara Sen why she thinks that Bennu and other asteroids are fascinating to study. Here is her response. When I think about an asteroid, I'm not thinking about, you know, mud and clay. I'm thinking about something that's like way beyond my imagination as a citizen on Earth. But what we learn when we study asteroids is that they're not that different from the world that we see around us. And that's why I love studying them. It's because, you know, it feels like there's a part of our home that's, you know, distant. So on Tuesday, October 20th, look up in the sky and imagine Osiris-Rex touching down on asteroid Bennu and gathering dust that, when it returns in 23, will provide scientists with materials that will provide a glimpse into the origins of Earth. For Locally Sourced Science, I'm Esther Rakusin. You are listening to Locally Sourced Science, Please let us know about your science news. Tweet at us at FLX Science Radio. You can check out our podcast at locallysourcescience.org. Hello, Locally Source Science listeners. I'm Liz Mahood, and in this episode, I'll be interviewing Zoe Lerner-Pontario, manager of Cornell's Spacecraft Planetary Imaging Facility, or SPIF. SPIF is at once a resource for scientists and anyone who wants to learn more about space. As the leader of SPIF, Zoe is in charge of maintaining imagery archives, providing research support, and coordinating community outreach and regional pre-K through 12 education in planetary science. Since the pandemic, the outreach that Zoe leads has been through the Shelter in Space program. Today, I'll speak with Zoe about how the program was created, some of the content it provides to pre-K through 12 students, and what will come from the program in the future. Here's Zoe. Zoe, thank you so much for speaking with Locally Sourced Science today. Uh, The first question I'd like to ask you is, first, can you just describe to us what the Shelter in Space program is, uh, specifically like what content does it offer to students and what age range of students does it work with? So the Shelter in Space was and is a remote learning program that SPIF came up with very quickly when we heard the schools were closing. I cannot take credit for coming up with the name. Uh, That was done by a colleague of mine, Dr. Dan Lalich. So I'll give him credit for that clever idea. And we basically started just immediately brainstorming ideas of, okay, how can we keep doing what we're doing given the current situation? And we put together first and foremost, a portal. Uh, and it's on a Google Doc that is publicly available. There's a link to it on our pinned post on our Facebook page, as well as links all over our website for it. And there I tried to collect 
not just what SPIF uh, could offer, but also resources from NASA specifically and other resources from Cornell and other local places like the Science Center. And so, you know, set that up, get that there. And our goal is to continue reaching the full age range of pre-K through 12, which has always been our mission statement. We've always focused on things that can be scalable. So we're continuing to still try and hit that whole age range. And so the portal is right there to not only help you know what SPIF can do, but also see other things that might be helpful either in a classroom or in home. And then just started continuing to develop content and keeping that page updated about once a week uh, with at least a few new things that I've come across and can share. Great, that sounds awesome. That sounds like a wonderful opportunity for students to keep learning during the pandemic. Um, so we have already briefly spoken about this, but when you were creating the shelter in space program, when you're creating its virtual content, was it a was it a big lift or was it a huge task to make virtual content or was there a lot of already uh, virtual content available for you? Um, and what were your main sources of inspiration when you were making the shelter in space program? So I would say it was a mixture. On one hand, I felt ready from day one to do virtual programming. I had not done a lot. I think in my three years at this job, I had only done a handful of things virtually, but I was to some extent familiar with Zoom, though of course I've learned a lot about it uh, in the last few months. But I felt ready to just like, if anybody asked, I could dive in and I could do something virtually because I at least had done it before. But then developing the portal, making that, uh, you know, look nice and be obvious what it is and be easy to find things on it. Uh, that took some time. I, they announced school closing March 13th. The program officially went live April 2nd. So there was a time of trying to gather things together. Um, and initially, actually, it was pretty easy to gather up lots of resources because both as an educator and as a parent, uh, overwhelmingly in those first few weeks you were just getting bombarded with things from NASA but also other programs virtual tours of places and so gathering together an initial just list of resources was not that hard organizing them took some time in a way that I thought was easy to understand then we started also thinking we've got to start doing YouTube videos that took a while to get up and, and running. We do now have a YouTube channel with videos there. We are continuing to make videos. So it was easy to go just right on with, okay, we can do something. But then the actual development has been an ongoing process of continuing to add to the resource portal and looking into different ways that we can engage the public virtually. Could you speak a bit about what types of things you put into a YouTube video? So a few different kinds of videos we've put there. One is that, and there's only one there now, but we are going to make more, is uh, activity videos. So there's one there is kind of an example of where we want to go, where we describe an activity and focusing on things that would be easy to do either in a classroom or in the home that involve materials that are probably readily available or at least have different options for what you could substitute things for are scalable to a wide age range. The other thing is the Minute in Space series, which there are, I think, four episodes so far. We're working on another batch right now. 
And those are fun little videos. They're about two minutes long. And I introduce a commonly asked question that I get, and then I challenge myself to answer it in under a minute. And one of the first ones we did, for instance, is what is Pluto? So I tried to answer that in one minute. So those are really fun to do. And they're great because they're nice and short. And they're great for like starting a conversation about the topic, because it's, of course, not meant to answer everything. It's meant to just quickly introduce uh, an answer to that. There's also a few other videos, like a few lectures that uh, are longer format, and I am looking at filming. Actually, I have filmed and I need to do post-production on a very short version of a tour of the solar system. And also like an introductory trailer, this is what we are kind of videos. So it's still very much in the early stages, um, but we do plan on doing more activity videos and doing more episodes of Minute in Space. That's really neat. So I, I, here I won't ask you what is Pluto. People have to go online and see your videos for that answer. If you're just tuning in, I'm Liz Mahut interviewing Zoe Lerner-Ponterio about the Shelter in Space program. Since the pandemic, this program has been delivering space-themed educational activities to pre-K through 12th grade students. Stay tuned for descriptions of really cool activities that the Shelter in Space program has done thus far and for their plans for the future. Uh, of all the content that you've uploaded in the Shelter in Space program, can you describe some of the really successful activities or resources that you have there? I'd say that one of the, speaking specifically of the SPIF uh, resources that are available there, uh, one that has really worked especially with younger kids is the Chat with a Scientist program, where I've had to shift from looking at it like going and giving a presentation and make it much more of an interactive Q&A session. Because I find that with the younger children, especially that uh, to keep them engaged in that virtual environment, uh, you need to be constantly involving them. So instead of going in and doing a talk with Q&A after, it's like the whole thing is Q&A. And I'll ask the teachers to have the kids prepare questions ahead of time, but I also say, it's a free for all, ask anything you want during that time. So that has been very helpful. I've, I've done as young as kindergarten classes with that. And for older kids, I actually have dabbled a bit in, in leading an actual activity. And the one that I did that was with uh, the STEP program, which is a Cornell program uh, for engineering for high school age students. And I did one with them that was like a recreation of the CO2 filter emergency aboard the Apollo 13 mission, and where they had to create basically a new filter out of random objects that were in the spacecraft at that time, and of course could not use anything that wasn't already on board the spacecraft. And what I actually found was it almost worked better because I forced them to go into Zoom breakout rooms, use audio only, and basically you're a game of telephone where one person's describing it but can't show it to the person, and the other person's trying to build it just based on these audio instructions. And uh, I sat there listening to these conversations and having listened to like the real-time footage of a lot of the Apollo missions, I was just struck by how much it sounded like the real thing. And that actually, I was like, you know, even when all of this is done, I think I might still incorporate Zoom into doing that activity because it really made it even more realistic. Wow, that's really neat. That sounds like a lot of fun. Um, so my final question is, so 
SPIF is planning on extending their shelter in space program through the 2020-2021 school year. Um, can we get a preview of what's next, what will be uploaded during this school year? So first and foremost, we're going to continue doing what we're doing and all the resources are going to continue. And one of our goals is to just uh, expand the number of events and the number of kids that we are reaching, uh, pretty much doing that as we've normally done, reaching out to a vast list of contacts we have throughout the region, teachers, but also school administrators, librarians, community leaders and such to just do more because even though I was really happy with how many we did at the end of last year and done over the summer, I think everyone, everything was still very new. And I think that as we move into this year, everyone's gonna be a little you know, more comfortable and able to utilize this more. We are also applying for new funding to mainly be able to buy supplies that we can loan out to schools and families because we don't have the option of bringing them to SPIF anymore where we have all the supplies. I can't go to them and do the supplies in person. So trying to develop more into that virtual interactive activity. Having the students do something that's hands-on but still virtual, it sounds, it sounds like a great idea. So Zoe, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much. I'm Esther Rakusin, and you've been listening to Locally Sourced Science. I produced today's show. Liz Mahood produced the interview of Zoe Lerner-Ponterio, and Candice Limper presented information about the 2020 Migration Celebration at the Lab of Ornithology. Our theme music is from Joe Lewis and by Blue Dot Sessions. You can find all of our archive shows and subscribe to our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. Science out.